Hey guys, it's me again. <laughs> Can't believe I ate the whole thing. So now we have to talk about what we can do about critical race theory. And frankly, I have the least to say on this. We'll see if we make it before seven o'clock out of here. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, do not attempt to cure what you do not understand. That is the maxim I kind of opened up with. I just pointed that out in the previous lecture near the end. Hopefully now you have an understanding of what critical race theory is, what it believes, where it comes from, and how it operates so that you can spot it and recognize those manipulations and start to respond to some of those manipulations. And now we can talk about what we should do about it. And um, there are kind of three fronts on which we're gonna talk about that. But before I do that, I wanna tell you a story of a time in, I guess it was in December, that I was humiliated by this question. I'm not Robin D'Angelo, don't worry. We're not going like that. I was actually doing a recorded event with a Catholic bishop. And we talked about all the issues and we talked about Derrida and he quoted Derrida in French. And we talked about this and we talked about that and what it's doing in the church and in faith and what it's doing in the world around and where it comes from. And then the, the moderator asked, well, what should we do about it? And he goes to me first and I gave this big kind of waffling answer. And uh, some of the things I'm sure I'll say waffling today. And then the priest said, well, or the bishop, I should say, said, well, you have to resist. And it never occurred to me to just say, you have to resist. You have to resist it. And so I felt like, I was like, oh, wow, this man of the cloth is like, fight. And I'm like, oh, well, the ideas are like, they're humiliating. So you do have to resist, you have to stand up against it. Like I closed the previous lecture with, you have to remove the people who are invested in this from power because their entire operation is about gaining, seizing, manipulating power. They want to seize the means of cultural production and weaponize those to create critical race theorists by the different things that we learned in accordance with the faith that we've now described. And you have to remove them from power and that's one way to resist. Another way to resist, I've quoted on Twitter many times, many of you will have seen from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which is to say, let the lie come into the world, let it triumph even, but not through me. So sit strongly and tell the truth. That's another thing you can do about critical race theory. But that's not much. Because this is kind of like, as you noticed, a bit of a tide. And there are a lot of things that have to happen. It was a long march to the institutions that have been largely successful. So we have a problem with our institutions. Reclaiming some grasp on those is unfortunately necessary. While I could say homeschool your kids, it's a great short-term project. But if your neighbors don't do it, and most of them won't, or if they clamp down on it and make it where you can't do it, or that it doesn't count unless you indoctrinate them into critical race theory or program them into critical theories yourself, that's not much of a solution. They're already putting homeschooling in the crosshairs, and people keep telling me, oh no, there's lots of legal precedent that'll protect us. Really? That's what you're gonna rest on right now in this environment. I wish I could just say that we can withdraw, be ourselves, just wanna be left alone, but it's not enough. You actually have to do some things. We actually have to reclaim some grasp, if not most of the grasp on our institutions. We have to make some institutional changes. Schools are just one domain. And that requires 
being willing to do the one thing that I hate to tell anybody to do because I don't think anybody should have to do this is to become active. You have to be, well, not necessarily you, but you have to be an activist or you may have to support people who are. You have to show up. People ask me all the time, well, what can I do? You know, I care about my kid's school. I care about this. I care about that. What can I do? Well, have you organized with other parents? Well, I'm scared to. I'm scared to admit to another dad that I don't buy into this stuff. Because what if he loses it and then my kid suffers? You have to start organizing with one another, building networks, support networks, to where you're not going to be the one who feels isolated and ostracized, according to Alinsky's 13th rule. To isolate you, make it personal, and try to break you or something you care about so much that you give in. You have to start to organize with each other. You have to start to network. You have to start to find like-minded people. You have to start having the conversation. You'd be shocked at how powerful it is to just be one person who everybody's talking about whatever, and you say, you know, I don't really know if I believe all that. I told a story recently at the uh, Turning Point Conference the other day. I told a story about a young woman that I know who said, you know, I'm the most trans-accepting, gay-accepting, whatever person and you know that about me. But I don't know about this neo-pronoun stuff. I'm not doing that. You have to be willing to be the person who draws a reasonable enough line and isn't going to do that somewhere. I wrote an essay. I've been told it's probably the most important essay that I've written last summer, and it's called The Woke Breaking Point. You should be finding, if, I mean, I'm talking to the wrong room to find your own, you're already broken of woke. You need to help other people find their woke breaking points. The point at which, if this happens, they're along for the ride now, your friends and family, they should be thinking about this ahead of time so they can't slip down that slippery slope of a dialectical process later and rationalize it on the back end. If this happens, that's the bridge too far. And get them to say it out loud in a social environment. Well, it's fine now if anybody still believes that, but if they, whatever, I would have said tear down a statue of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or something, but, well, we passed that bridge a long time ago. If they riot, loot, and arson, it's justified, well, we passed that one too. So you have to find, though, what is it? You ask them, what is it? Where you would say, if this happens, that's too far, I'm out. You're right, something's wrong with it. And get them, even if they can't come up with something, to think about that. That's very, very important. Because if not, the thing will pass, they'll rationalize why it's okay again. But if they've declared it ahead of time, they're stuck a little bit, especially in a social situation, and they're going to think about it again. When you organize after having these kinds of conversations and you start to find out who you know, will resist with you, stand up, show up. Back in the corner, got my friend Paul here. Paul decided to stand up against the state of New York's education system. He was like, nobody's doing it. I'll do it. And then he started doing it. And then people started to come around him. And then there's people interacting with his stuff. Courage begets courage, so have some courage. The crowd is ready to carry you. You're not jumping off the stage onto the concrete anymore, like fools like I did. <laughs> Be willing when you show up to take office. Get on your school board if that's something you're willing to do. Run for city council. Work at that local governance. Get, into the, get on a committee at work that deals with this stuff. Volunteer to be on the diversity committee. And subvert it. 
These are things that you can do. These are kind of practical things to start changing the institution back from within. And you're going to not be popular for doing it in a lot of cases. But it's actually necessary. If we just sit here and complain, and as much as I like my cushy job here, and sit here and philosophize and yell at crowds, then they're going to keep implementing the praxis and the policy, and it's not going to turn back, no matter how right we are, no matter how loud we are. You have to actually show up and take action. You have to get organized. You have to show up. You have to take action. You have to be willing to get in there. You also have to show up knowing your rights. It's a very popular video went around viral on social media not terribly long ago. I wish I could remember what it said and who said it, but it's filmed from the side, and this man is being told by his school board that they don't like his tone and so that his time is over. They have no lawful right to tell you that, but if you don't know that, you're done. He shoots back with the relevant jurisprudence, saying that reading straight from it, after I guess somebody, it happened to somebody else a week earlier, so he went and looked this up, that he has the First Amendment right guaranteed to criticize a public institution in any tone that is befitting whatever, and he reads the word incorrectly. You need to be armed with information like that, so when they tell you, well, we think people who oppose critical race theory in the schools are disruptive, we're not gonna let you speak, you need to be able to articulate, no, according to X, Y, and Z, I have a First Amendment right that you cannot abridge. You cannot, you cannot step on my right, and if you do, and this is what the guy said, I will sue you. And you have to be willing to take it to court. If you're having compelled speech in your life, in your work, whatever it is, you might have a lawsuit. Talk to a lawyer. Compelled speech is not particularly uh, looked well upon in virtually any area of society. We hear all the time, oh, if we ban critical race theory, that's an abridgment of our First Amendment rights. We should be able to do critical race theory, blah, blah, blah. It's free, freedom of speech. No, the state doesn't have freedom of speech. Get your arguments straight. The state doesn't have freedom of speech. Individuals have protection from the government. The government can't curtail their speech and it cannot compel their speech. So if your school, your kid's school, or your workplace, which might be public, it may even be private depending on circumstances, it gets different there, is compelling you with a diversity statement or making you confess your right privilege, you might have a lawsuit. Compelled speech lawsuits, I'm told by lawyers, I'm not one, this does not constitute legal advice, are the most effective way to start making progress and building precedent. So you have to start being willing to think of yourself. I had this young lady contact me with something to do with teacher, uh, or teacher program that she was going through in, in, uh, in university. And to get certified, you have to go through a critical pedagogy indoctrination. But this is for a public sector job. And I said, you know, well, you, you, she described this horrific circumstance she's going through. It's all critical race theory based. I said, you realize you're being discriminated against racially, and you should probably try to say something about this. And then she said, huh, I'm white. I can't be discriminated against. Stop playing on their rules. Yes, you can be. Everybody can be. Another thing you can do about critical race theory, because we called it a vampire a minute ago, you know it doesn't like sunlight. Have you seen what happens when you blow the whistle? Blow the whistle on Coca-Cola, huge corporation, backs off. Blow the whistle on Disney, huge corporation, backs off. Most litigious corporation maybe in the universe, backs off. They don't want people seeing what they're doing. Call out critical race theory in the schools, and it's no, it's culturally responsive teaching, CRT. They don't want people seeing what they're doing. Get those materials from the schools or from your workplace or whatever and start publicizing them. 
Feed them to sympathetic media. They don't like people seeing what they're doing. They like to hide in the shadows. Whistleblowing is very, very powerful. I encourage this. But we have to start actually making some bigger changes as well. If we want to stop something like critical race theory, we have to look at legislative and legal moves as well. That includes with the lawsuits, the goal of the lawsuit isn't just to win the lawsuit, it's also to set legal precedent. So those have to be strategic. So you want to, you want to call competent lawyers, not Leroy Jenkins, Esquire. <laughs> as for whether or not we should be pushing for these bills and orders that ban so-called ban, it's not banning critical race theory, but the ones that are nominally banning critical race theory, the answer is yes, we should. Because they create a legal lever by which we can then take the next steps. Everybody wants to tell you, well, banning it won't do anything. It's not enforceable until it creates the grounds for the next lawsuit that begins to make that precedent. So you have to continue. The bans are step one of 30 or 40 or something, but you have to do them. You, they will not stop without them. You put the legal ban and they say, we'll do it anyway. We'll just call it something different. We won't tell. We'll just do it in flagrant defiance of the law. They say publicly, thousands of teachers saying publicly that they're going to do this. The National Teachers Union comes out and says, we will back the people who defy these laws. You actually need them. They don't want them. And then, of course, those have to be made in intelligent ways. So if you end up being connected to state legislatures and whatever, make sure that they ban critical race praxis, what it does, not critical race theory as what it is. If you look at Trump's original executive order, nobody ever has. There's that famous, I guess, or infamous um, four-person New York Times piece recently saying, no, we should not ban critical race theory. And I asked one of the authors, did you read the bill? No, never have. Just went on what the media told me about it. Doesn't know, for example, that in Trump's executive order, which was never read, that in section 10 it explicitly says, nothing in this order shall be construed to ban the teaching of critical race theory as an academic subject. You just can't racially discriminate, racially scapegoat, racial stereotype, call the country fundamentally racist, et cetera, et cetera. It's very specific. These things are actually necessary. We have to fight back. We have to activate the civil rights laws in a way where we can actually use them because that turns into a step to change bad jurisprudence on civil rights law that prevents it. Why did this person feel like white people can't be discriminated against? Well, I mean, I have another person who reached out to me who was another CRT firing case dismissed from their university job, and they tried to find a lawyer, and after consulting with about a dozen of them, they were told, well, white people are not a protected class because there's bad jurisprudence around civil rights law so that it can be leveraged. That actually has to be a strategic target to change. Reversing precedent is harder, but it is possible. There should be strategic efforts being employed by people who organize and know how to do those things to start working to get the court somewhere to reverse those things. A particularly bad piece of jurisprudence allowed for disparate impact to be treated as proof of discrimination. Disparate impact. Remember that thing Ibram Kendi with his dictatorship of the anti-racist? That was part of the definition that he said was gonna be the two misspelled principals of <laughs> his anti-racist constitutional amendment. 
that disparate impact is treated as proof of discrimination. That's terrible. Intention should be recognized as part of it. We have to get back to a narrower interpretation of discrimination, and we have to, after we have a, a narrower interpretation of discrimination, we have to make sure it applies in an equal colorblind fashion. Neutrality before the law must be fought for very vigorously. And where the jurisprudence, for those people who are lawyers or connected to lawyers who know how to do these things, that has to be pushed in a direction strategically that can start to reverse some of that and get us back to narrower constraints. And this is because all of this bad jurisprudence and all of these institutions that have been partially or completely captured, this is the key thing, have led to the, I mean, we talked about like the big ESG stuff and that's its own thing within this, this um, umbrella, but all of these pieces of bad uh, judicial decision and bad application of law have led to incentive structures that keep this thing going. The incentives are very clear for people who want to manipulate this, who can use the critical race theory mentality, especially if they happen to not be white, to manipulate the situation to their own advantage. It's a very griftable concept. Iron law of woke corruption, version one. Version two is just look and see how many of these people are doing something corrupt when they're using woke politics, probably to cover it up. The incentive structures themselves have to be challenged. If you read Critical Race Theory Introduction, like, or, sorry, Critical Race Theory, the key writings that form the movement, but also it's in Critical Race Theory Introduction, but fewer times. Affirmative action is highlighted, <coughs> as, and many of the entitlement programs out of the Great Society are highlighted as specific reasons why critical race theory exists. They were started, enthusiasm for those was starting to slip, therefore, we have to work very hard to make sure that they're not only continued, but increased. Affirmative action isn't enough, we need reparations. We need expanded affirmative action, et cetera. They say so over and over and over again, it's incentives. The incentives of things that they can milk to gain power and resources for themselves. As long as those incentives exist, critical race theory is going to be able to continue to march. Some of those are moral incentives. Don't wanna be a bad person, don't wanna look uh, unrespectable. Don't wanna be a deplorable, they'll call you. Let me tell you what, that's a fall. So you have to start challenging these incentive structures. On the one level, that's you know, these kinds of legal changes. You create laws that ban critical race praxis or other critical theory praxis specifically because it creates a disincentive to implement it. You make corporations aware that they're going to get very bad PR or they're possibly gonna land themselves a civil rights lawsuit if they continue using this stuff. That creates a financial incentive and a public relations incentive. You start making it uncool, cringe, as the kids say, <laughs> to promote this crap. You make it uncool, the word is cringe. Critical race theory is cringe, meme that. Make people understand it. Wow, that's a cringy take. Wow, you really think in terms of race all the time, cringe? These kinds of things start to change the incentives around it. You don't look virtuous, your virtue signal switches at that point from being critical race theory, I'm a good person, to ooh, cringe, I have the opposite. And then you wanna be sure to guide that not to feed the reactionaries because the reactionaries are gonna capitalize that space. So you have to be courageous to speak up honestly about just how bad critical race theory is without tipping all the way into we need to go full-blown reaction against this, force on force because that's the other terrible side of this. 
and the reactionaries are waking up. The so-called sleeping giant, we used to use that word like in the before times, like four months ago. The sleeping giant is stirring and murmuring. Nobody can remember those times. So you have to challenge these incentive structures. You have to look at what incentive there is for people to behave in these ways, and you have to start finding ways at the various levels, institutional, material, and uh, cultural, to start changing those. And so one of the things I want to talk about, and I think this is the most important thing that I'm probably going to say, I've kind of framed out everything so far in terms of this idea that intersectionality has filled in the gap that Herbert Marcuse called a new sensibility. We're now going to think in terms of power dynamics. We're going to engage positionality intentionally. We have a new sensibility that's very fractious. It's very divisive. It divides, and it doesn't divide and conquer so much as it divides and scoops up the sympathizers. It polarizes and drives people to the fringes and then takes the radicals for itself. It's very divisive, fractious, at best balkanizing, held together by this loose, these loose threads of all oppression is kind of the same, which you can tell is not true because intersectionality does nothing better than chew on its own leg. They all hate each other. They're all fighting over who gets the spoils of their little cultural revolution. Very balkanizing in that regard. It tears apart. It separates us. It's weird to have a friend of another race now because you didn't engage your racial difference constantly. It's a lack of racial humility or something. And so we have to get away from this new intersectional sensibility, this divisive sensibility, this so-called new sensibility, into a common sensibility. We have to be looking, if we talk about changing at the level of institutions, that's a bunch of crap for lawyers, it's a bunch of crap for people who want to get politically involved and activists, people who want to take office, good for you if that's you, please do it. Get organized, get informed, show up together, have a plan, and do it. If we want to talk about looking at incentive structures as a follow-on from that, that's very important. Second dimension. But if we want to make these changes last, it's not enough to try to change the laws and change the institutions. As many people pointed out, Correctly, if we make anti-CRT-based laws or CRT praxis laws, it's only a matter of time till they co-opt them and use them against us. Only a matter of time. Trump's CEO lasted until like the second hour of the Biden administration. They'll get rid of that stuff. You have to actually change the culture. You hear this constant claim that there's this dichotomy between the institutional fight, and oh, if we ban CRT, it's gonna make us lose the cultural battle because it's gonna alienate people because it looks like we're using force, so we can't do that. No, we have to win both fights. We have to change the culture, and the way we're gonna change the culture is to change it to the thing that makes sense, common sensibility as opposed to an intersectional sensibility. It's very simple. It's what the liberal project was about in the first place, it was creating a space in the public sphere in which there was a common sensibility. Thomas Paine wrote common sense. I'm telling you, common sensibility. We see the world roughly through the same lens. It's the difference between a pluralistic e pluribus unum society and a multicultural fragmented society. That's the difference. Pluralism and multiculturalism are not the same project. They are not synonymous. You have to have something in common, whether it's universal humanity. Remember, Kimberly Crenshaw said that saying, I am a person who happens to be black, strives for a certain universality that denies the imposition of race. In effect, I am first a person. Yes, you are first a person. And we should remember that. And we should be proud that we think that. 
regardless of what you look like or where your background is. Yes, you are first a person. It's common sense ability between us. And we need to get back to that. We're going to treat you that way. You are first a person. Identity first is dangerous poison. It's fractious. There are a lot of other ways that we can get to a common sensibility. And I punned off of uh, common sense for that with, with Thomas Paine, because if you read that, I mean, first he just rails on the British, but really it's him railing on the fact that it is not common sense to live under a tyranny that's established by the British crown. We need to get to a common sense approach to how we're gonna handle the division that's between the British and the Americans. That was coming, at the, coming apart by the time he was writing that in the late 18th century. We have to find some kind of common sensibility where there is a common sense that's not seen as a conspiracy theory created by white people who allegedly appointed themselves the archetype of humanity. You are first a person, universal humanity. Yeah, you are, if you're an American, you're an American. You are still all part of one, e pluribus unum, greatest diversity experiment in the history of mankind, and it worked. That means we have to get back to some kind of standards that we can share in common, regardless of who you are. Coming from a background in the sciences, we have not universalism, but universality as a core principle of the sciences. Something is not true unless it's true independent of who does the experiment. And then you can't say this because critical race theory is like, you're calling people dogs. But if the dog did the experiment and the outcome is the outcome, the outcome is still the outcome. That which is true does not matter on who did the experiment. Positional standpoint knowledge acquisition is bogus. Your truth versus my truth is not the truth. And so what we have to do to develop a common sensibility is get back to objective standards. For example, truth under a doctrine of something like universality. It's not that there's a God's eye position from nowhere. It's that we actually can use rigorous methodologies to correct for our biases, and the claim that those methodologies are rigorous is not a conspiracy created by white Western European males. What is true is true. Do the experiment yourself if you don't believe. And if you get a contradictory result, well, bully for you, you just improve the situation. But if you get the same result, it's probably true. And the more times you get the same result, the more likely it is to be probably true. So we should be elevating the idea of truth with objectivity as an ideal. Not something that we have, oh, I'm objective because what? No, it's something that we're striving for. It's something that we're aware of the fact that there are biases and therefore we're taking rigorous steps to minimize the effect of those biases. Maybe I had a vested interest, so let's make sure we bring somebody on to do the experiment who doesn't work for my company. That's a bias. That sugar industry and the fats thing and we all got diabetes. So truth, the truth is the truth for everybody. Figuring out the truth is a process everybody's supposed to be able to participate in. That's common sensibility, it's common to us all. And it doesn't actually matter if the experiment's being done by a dog. It doesn't. Not even a human. I have a whole paper I wrote, and I wrote in the paper, as a human and not as a dog, I understand the limitations of my perspective. I don't know when the dog humping incident is rape because I can't tell when the dog wants it. I wrote that. It got an award. I don't know why they needed me to verify that I'm not a dog writing an academic paper, but you know, 
Dogs are making great strides in the world these days. I got asked the other night about my definition of beauty as arete, as the Greek ideal of excellence. Excellence is something that we can always and all aspire to. It doesn't really matter what you do. You can aspire to excellence in it. And if we're all aspiring to excellence in our own things, and if we're all trading the, the results of our attempts at excellence, and we have some mechanism like a mostly free market with some bumpers around the important edges, make sure it doesn't go off into like monopolies or whatever, then we can actually create a positive sum situation by pursuing excellence for each of us. And I can recognize excellence in somebody else that it's something that I can't do or not, even that I'm not interested in. Like maybe I don't care at all about painting. I don't know if I do or not, but I can tell when somebody's you know, doing something good with it versus you know, taping a banana to the wall. <laughs> I know that's not paint, but bear with me. It's been a long series of things. Another kryptonite value that actually is shared by everybody is responsibility. It's common sensibility that if we all take responsibility for our own crap, and that when we want to help other, other people, that's volitional, meaning teamwork, not collectivism, then you can create great outcomes. Between this responsibility and what I just said about excellence, start talking about free markets. There's an old saying, I've brought up lots of old sayings of things that people forgot, the old wives' tales, which sometimes contain wisdom according, according to Tolkien. There's only one color in capitalism, green. A universal currency within our country is an objective standard. $10 in your hand is $10 in your hand. $10 in my hand is still $10 doesn't matter. You start putting things on equal common sense, common sensibility grounds, and all of a sudden, you start breaking down barriers. Racism gets broken down, for example, by having people who look different from one another deciding, oh wow, you got something cool to sell, I got money. It works. Oh wow, you had a cool discovery. You figured something out. I'm interested in that. I want that knowledge, truth. Wow, you're really talented. You really have elevated your form to excellence. I want to learn from you. I don't care what you look like. I want to learn from you. Excellence. How did you get so successful? Well, I put myself in a position where I took responsibility to climb out of dependency, and it worked. Well, I want to copy that. Will you mentor me? Common sensibility, something, these kinds of values that we can all come back to. Liberty. Turns out we all actually want to be free to at least some degree. People say, I've been to, to China, for example, and I've literally heard people say, well, we like to just go along because we like to be told what to do. It's one less thing to think about. Horrifying. But the fact of the matter is, is the second that they're being told what to do on something that they really don't want to do, liberty sounds really good all of a sudden. We want to be free. We want to explore. A lot of people are very down on liberalism. Critical race theory offers a critique of liberalism at its very core. We talked about that, questioning the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, uh, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. Right? We should be able to give a full-throated defense of what liberalism brought to the world. Freedom. The state doesn't get to tell you how to believe. It doesn't get to tell you how to think. You get to pursue meaning how you want to, with the people you want to. 
People say, well, liberalism failed because it doesn't provide meaning for people. It wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to prevent providing meaning for people through some structure they didn't want, like a corrupt church or one faith that everybody now has to subscribe to, even though they believe differently or think that the interpretation of the Bible or whatever other scripture says that that's not the way it really should be. Liberalism brought the freedom for you to pursue meaning where you find meaning. And freedom's scary. It requires responsibility. Liberty and responsibility are paired. And so cultivating those virtues is actually kind of an anti-woke thing, but it opens up, again, a common sensibility that we can share that this works. This does things we want to see in the world. You want to know what the biggest kryptonite Though it is not responsibility, surprisingly. The biggest kryptonite for the woke is? It's one of their favorite words. Accountability. You want to end woke in your company? Here's what you can do. They come to you. They say, eh, we're not really hiring enough people who are like this. And you say, good thinking. I know they're out there. Your job is to find them. There's responsibility. You have six months or you're fired there's accountability. This has happened in several companies, people I've talked to, CEOs I've talked to. You know what happens when they do that? The CEO, first of all, gets put in a win-win. Maybe they were right and they succeed and he gets new talent. Maybe they were wrong and he gets to fire somebody who causes a problem. But it's never come to that. 100% of the people charged with this accountability, real accountability, not bullying, posing as accountability, quit. They're like, oh shit, I actually have to do something, I'm out. Seriously, they do, they quit. They just wanna complain. Critical theories are actually means of weaponized complaining. Say, oh, that's a great idea, you're right. That talent is out there, go get it. And we're gonna fire you if you can't. That's your job now. You'll give you a bonus when you succeed. You get a raise, new title, they quit. It's your job now. Hey, you had a great idea, it's your job now. And if you fail, we're gonna hold you accountable. You wanna see that in our company? Be the change. It works. They are paralyzed by accountability. But what do we hear all the time? Whether it's the media using it manipulatively or in real fashion. Accountability, accountability, where's the accountability? Such and such happened, where's the accountability? It is common sense that people should be held accountable for stuff that they fail at in a society that's going to function. We just want that accountability to be genuine accountability as opposed to mob accountability or bullying. That's common sense as well. It's a common sensibility we can share. Hold people accountable to that which we expect them to do. Don't give people a special pass. You know, if somebody steals a bottle of wine from a store or shoplifting, you don't say, well, what color were they? Maybe the systems of power made them do it. Well, you can't help the fact that he beat his wife, you know. Systems of power made him do it. Hold people accountable for what they do wrong on a neutral standard. This is a common sensibility. And focusing on merit through all of this, common sensibility. Jordan Peterson's very eloquent about this. He says that hierarchies form throughout nature no matter what. The least corrupt is when you favor merit and competence the most. 
And that's something that's all in common. Can you do the job? I don't care where you came from. I don't care what language you speak. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your genitals are. I don't care how you self-identify. Go home and self-identify as a dragon. I don't care. Can you do it? And if you can't, we're going to hold you accountable. And if you build your system that way, with objective standards to the greatest degree, here's the, with the law, we have objective law in the sense that it could change, of course, and it's obviously socially constructed, of course, but it's still objective because you go to court and the law is the law that day. It doesn't change. If you want to petition to appeal, you can petition to appeal. If you want to change the law, you better hope the jurisprudence goes your way, or you become a legislator, or you lobby your legislators or whatever to change the law. There's a process, and you go through that process. Process is the same for everybody. Can you do the job or not? Build your hierarchies based on competence, and you're going to minimize corruption. You're going to minimize the opportunity for grift. It's not perfect. Meritocracy is not perfect. Human beings aren't perfect machines. I'm going to favor, there are a couple of factors to that, for instance, I'm going to hire my friend because I know and trust him, trust is a thing, even if he's not the most com competent person, maybe. We call that nepotism when it's out of control. It's a form of corruption. We also have limited circles. Maybe the most competent person to take new discourses to the next level is in this room, and I don't know it, but maybe they're in some other room and I have no idea. Well, I'm not going to hire somebody who's off somewhere in like South Texas that I don't know about. I'm only going to hire from people that I actually know. So there's, that's not corruption, but we're not actually hiring the best person. This isn't a critique of meritocracy. It's just a statement of the limitations of constrained systems. And we can say that. We can say, wait, this is common sense. I'm not going to hire people I don't, I've never heard of. Like, obviously, that's not an indictment of meritocracy. The fact that somebody that I know could, I can do this, I might call them favorably, that's not necessarily nepotism if they can actually do the job, et cetera. So things like this, truth, excellence, responsibility, liberty, accountability, favoring merit, all of these things share something in common is that they really appeal to standards that are outside of individual self-interest in each case to the maximum degree possible. And we have to nourish back to this liberalism-based common sensibility that that is really what works. We should be looking at these kind of big tent values then. Truth, merit, I mean, these are big tent. A lot of people can agree on them. To form a new common sensibility, and I say new, it's not new, it's just being said again and people forgot it. And to base what we do on that and to be articulate and full-throated to say that no, we need not a new sensibility, not an intersectional sensibility, not a critical race consciousness sensibility, but a common sensibility where the most people that we can get together within our polity see things largely the same way. That's how you start initiating the cultural change. Start urging people not to think in terms of solidarity, through positional engagement of their identity, but rather by appealing to something that we all have in common. You get a group of people together for a training, you say, what do we all have in common? Let's start there. Build commonality. What do we all care about? Well, goal-oriented mission statements and organizations, for example. Do we all care about that? Well, I don't, sir. Get out. You don't work here. No problem. <laughs> so these kinds of things enable us to create the cultural changes. And the way that that's done is not by complaining. It's by going out and living that, 
I know I sound religious at this point, and giving a full-throated articulation that this is great, this works, this is improving my life. Look how much better things are getting since I've started doing this. Jordan Peterson says, clean your room. Everybody's like, oh my God, my life is better. That's a testimonial to the fact that that has done something positive and it goes viral. Taking responsibility rather than falling into resentment can be something that is looked at in a positive light and we can develop that common sensibility back around it. We can look kind of with cringe at people who are leaning into their poor victimhood and elevate dignity again. Dignity culture was working. Victimhood culture has tried to parasitize off of that. It's straightforward. Elevate dignity. Consider victimhood cringe. Look how terrible my lot is. I mean, I was listening to, I, was, I went to the store the other day and they're playing on the radio like a call-in show. And, you know, request a song and this guy's on there just whining about this woman. He's like, oh, I love her, blah, 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 just whining. And I was listening to it and I was just like, shut up. <laughs> like cringe, man, just shut up. Like you're not gonna win her this way. Like go to the gym and try again. <laughs> Like, seriously, go improve yourself. I told the kids at the turning point, I was like, get based. Get a foundation under yourself, whether that's physical, by getting in shape, taking care of your body, something you can bring under your own control. Get the internal locus of, the, of control again. I have power over my own life as opposed to the system is screwing me, external locus of control. Whether that's professional, go gain some skills. Guess what? Newsflash, if you haven't done something before, this used to be one of my rules of life. I used to have James's rules of life. Everybody sucks at everything at first. That was one of my rules. And it's a very nice rule. It lets you forgive other people when they're trying to learn, and it lets you forgive yourself when you try something new, so you'll keep trying it longer. Don't give up on yourself. Everybody sucks at everything at first. So don't give up. Go acquire some skills. Just dive in and do something. Build your professional skills. Get based. If you're spiritual, whatever that means to you, religious or otherwise, get square with yourself about that. Understand who you are. Examine your life, not in a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-flagellation, self-beating up, self-loathing, and social activism, whatever it is. Get to know yourself. Know who you are so you can't be thrown around by, oh, this thing or that thing, or oh, the news said this, or we have to think that, or did you even hear what somebody said about this? Don't you think that's a little bit racist? Did you check your privilege? Like, no, I'm okay. <laughs> it's not about that. Thank you. Know who you are, and you can't be thrown around by this stuff. You have to do these things. These are steps people can take within themselves. And when you think about it, what does that build? It builds this sense of common sensibility within the ideas of competence and merit and valuing you know, improvement, looking for positive sum outcomes. Critical theory, in a sense, I don't know if you guys know, I don't know how deep we want to go into positive sum and all the near zero sum and negative sum, but what the deal is, and this is a little bit abstruse, I guess, but positive sum games exist. Capitalism exists to try to extract a positive sum game, which Marx got pissed off at and called exploitative surplus value. Right? So positive sum games exist when people operate in teams with a goal. You're a little bit better at this than I am. I'm a little better at that than you are. We bring the two things together. The Chinese might say, uh, nagasho. we bring the things together. And next thing you know, you said naga. I said naga. Yeah, this hand, that hand. Yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't say the other one. That's in here. So they, we bring those two things together, and the law of comparative advantage applies, and we have a positive sum outcome. Classic microeconomics. Positive sums exist. What critical theory exists to do, because it's based in negative thinking, is to frame positive sum situations as negative sum situations and throw them into a zero sum class conflict across that. Then they try to reframe those negative sum projects that they have. Maybe if we just tear everything down, negative thinking will become positive. They're framing a negative sum situation where everybody loses. Equity is a pile of rubble that everybody has equal access to like we said in cynical theories, if we just tear everything down to the lowest common denominator, then positivity will come out of that. They're framing a negative sum game that they're creating and forcing people to play so they can extract resources as a, the only road to a positive sum. It's a complete inversion of positive sum and negative sum thinking. So it's common sensibility that does start to understand what a positive sum situation is. You apply your talents, I apply my talents. You're what you're good at, what I'm good at. We figure out where we meet in the middle. We end up with more than either one of us could have pulled off if we work together. Teamwork. Lastly, what can we do to resist besides developing a common sensibility in opposition to Marcuse's terrible intersectional new sensibility? In addition to these institutional changes and being willing to stand up and take a step and to inform yourself and organize, show up and speak up, share, at least have the courage to say to people in your life. It doesn't have to be, I think this is all BS, this is all Marxism, whatever. You can just say, I don't know about all this and still doubt. I don't know about all this. It seems a little extreme. I was on board so far, and everybody was. You were on board so far, and then it was like, I don't know about all this. You know, besides all that, the most important thing you can do, though, I said it started out by saying that the, the bishop shamed me with resist. He didn't shame me on purpose. I just felt it in my heart. <laughs> the most important thing you can do is you have to realize what time it is. You have to realize the world that you live in right now. You have to realize that history is happening right now, and the other people believe that history will use you and discard you, whereas you can make that not be what the case is. History is in our hands. That's common sensibility, too. History is not yet written going forward. And that isn't some perspectivist, stupid argument like the winners write the history a fairly objective account of what happened can be uh, chronicled or, or ascertained. So going forward out of that, we don't have to think that history has a defined trajectory, but people right now are using that against us, and you need to understand that what time it is right now. You have to understand that you actually do have to do something about critical race theory, or it's not going to go away. Last summer, St. Floyd died, and this riots and things started, and I started putting on Twitter, and you can go look up my tweets from last June if you don't believe me, me saying repeatedly, this isn't going to blow over. This isn't going to blow over. It was the spark to try to start the revolution that they'd been laying all of this planning for through the institutions, et cetera. This isn't going to blow over. It doesn't stop until we start saying it has to stop. This is the moment of history you live in, whether you like it or not. I don't like that I live in this, that I have to do this. There are a million things more interesting I could be doing with my time than reading Herbert Marcuse's mental illness. <laughs> a million things. I could have my sword. You have to know the period of history you live in, and even if you didn't choose it, you have to rise up to that. So with that, 
Feel encouraged. Remember that courage begets courage, but the flip side of that is that cowardice begets cowardice. If you cave and somebody else sees you cave, they respond by believing that caving is the smart option. If you stand up, somebody else will stand up. I watched this video that was a perfect example of it. It was something to do with the COVID policies in a restaurant. Maybe it was in Canada or maybe somewhere else. I don't know. And the health people came in and they're bullying, you, you know, whatever people have to get out, whatever they're saying. And everybody's just kind of like doing this thing. They're looking down. They're kind of like getting away. And like finally this one guy speaks up and he says, you need to leave. You're trespassing, you need to go, you're not wanted here. And the second he said it, everybody in the whole crowd, every one of them was doing this whole little futzy thing, every one of them started chanting, get out, get out. The cowardice at the beginning was contagious, and the courage the second it arrived was contagious. You have to understand this. You have to be courageous. You, have to, uh, you shouldn't be afraid at this point to be called any name. It's obviously bogus, it's just linguistic manipulation and lies. But you have to be willing to take some of those arrows and you have to be willing to, to stand up and try and to speak up and have that courage. And you have to do so with the trust and the hope that somebody next to you will see it and say, no, this is unfair, I'm with him. I don't like what I see, I'm with her. We're in this against you together because what you're doing is unjust and unrealistic and absolutely batshit insane. So, with that, I encourage you to be courageous. I encourage you to take the uncomfortable step of learning about this, to take the uncomfortable step of speaking to other parents or friends or people at your workplace. Maybe it's just a whisper. I don't know about all this stuff. I'm not sure about this. And start feeling out where that doubt is and start organizing and start getting together and having meetings where you're talking about this stuff. We're all here in between. I just listened after the last lecture before this one. Everybody's chattering. Everybody's talking like crazy. That should be happening everywhere. Everybody needs to be talking about this everywhere they can find people. Make a group. Go get coffee. Start meeting. Talking about it. Get other people. Hey, what are you guys meeting about? If you're in a church, you're like six miles ahead. You've already got facilities and stuff. People probably won't bother you. Start using that. Get together. Start speaking up. Have the courage, though, to start figuring out how to recruit. Have the courage, if it's what you do, to stand up and speak or to write the article or to make a video and stick it up on YouTube or whatever it happens to be. Have the courage to take a step and try to get somebody to come with you. And if we all start doing that and start encouraging a call back to a common sensibility that doesn't put identity first and that isn't obsessed with the power dynamics inherent in everything and doesn't believe that everything is inherently political, but that there's lots of life that, isn't, that politics shouldn't even touch, should be set aside from politics so we can just enjoy. Having fun is common sensibility. I think I have a podcast that said, be a rebel, enjoy your life. Just enjoy your life. What a radical idea, but critical theories want to make you realize that you're secretly miserable, even though you're happy. You will own nothing and you will be happy. Take those steps, encourage the common sensibility, have the courage to talk to other people, have the courage to speak up, show up, and fight back. You must resist. That's how you stop critical race theory. Thank you.